0: You're listening to Wrestling Changed My Life, episode 93, with Jay Robinson.
1: you got to get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. So it says, this is what we're doing. We're here to win the national tournament. We're here to be a dominant force in wrestling. So now either get on the bus with us or get off the bus. Because if you're on the bus and you don't want to be there, you're going to get in our way.
0: We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change wrestling gave us that ability
2: i would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection resilience toughness some guys have it some guys don't
1: adversity 100 percent how to pick myself up and be a man after i failed and everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy.
0: We're fortunate if you wrestle because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort.
1: It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, that's good at wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness.
0: Ladies and gents, thank you so much for tuning in. It's episode 93, and my guest today is Jay Robinson, one of the true icons of wrestling, one of the true icons of coaching of any sport. And it's because he took a program, Minnesota, who had finished 33rd the year before he got there, and he built them into a national power. And it wasn't overnight. It took a long time, but eventually they became three-time national champs, six-time Big Ten champs. And before Minnesota, Jay was an assistant coach at Iowa for 12 years. And of those 12 years, Iowa won nine national titles. And before that, he was in the Olympics, he was in Vietnam, he was an Army Ranger. This guy's done it all. Let's get to the episode. Fan of the Week goes to Anthony Testa on Facebook, representing Highland, Indiana. Thank you so much for listening, Anthony. We appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by, not by a sponsor, but I want to raise some awareness for an event Jay's holding Wednesday before the Nationals in Minneapolis at Cowboy Jacks. It's seven people telling seven stories about how wrestling changed their life. It's at Cowboy Jacks on Wednesday before the national start in Minneapolis. If you're in town early, I'd go. It's all for a good cause. It's a take down cancer, but I wanted to raise some awareness for that. Last but not least, if you want to follow the podcast outside of this little hour and a half episode here, you can go to Twitter. It's Ryan underscore N underscore Warner. On Instagram, it's Wrestling Changed My Life. And then our website is WrestlingChangedMyLife.com. All past episodes, all merch is there. Ton of great clothing, coffee mugs, you name it. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for Jay Robinson. I figure we could just start with how you got involved with wrestling, and then we'll, uh, we'll take it from there.
1: It's pretty simple. I mean, my, I grew up in an era that's completely different than the era today in that, Um, wrestling is everywhere. It's in grade schools. Um, it's little kids, it's junior high, it's high school. When I was a kid, there wasn't really any grade school and there was a few, few programs in junior high, but I got as, uh, involved as a ninth grader. My high school, Mount Miguel High School in San Diego, California was known for their wrestling and their, what they called their district or their CIF. And it was just uh kind of the thing that you did is you went out and you played football and um and you wrestled and and um it kind of went from there and uh I wrestled as a freshman wasn't very good i mean I, um, <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs>
0: what was your I record was,
1: uh, Well, going into my last match, I was zero and seven <laughs> um, didn't win a match and then I pulled it all together. My last match, I ended up one and seven. My freshman year on a freshman team, not a junior varsity or varsity <laughs> team. So, it was quite, uh, quite a learning experience. Is that um, you just stick with it, and uh, and that's what it that's what it was. And uh, then, luckily, uh, as a sophomore, I wrestled again. I, d- I couldn't play football because. <laughs> We uh, we got grades for, like, uh, citizenship and conduct. You get an AA, and uh, I talked a lot in class, so I was kind of in a, eligible for football, so I ended up going out for wrestling. And um, and I got a chance to wrestle a couple of varsity matches. I wrestled a bunch of junior varsity, but I wrestled a couple of bar- varsity matches and won them, and I got a letter. And that at that early age, it inspired me Um being around guys. There was a guy named Roger Pickens, who was was like, in essence, a two-time champion, three-time champion. And then you just start finding guys you you want to be like. And um, it just kind of led me into wrestling. And then as a junior, I won, in essence, what would have been the state tournament, and then came back and won it again. And um, so there was a lot of things that kind of went... (laughs) Went wrong, but then went right, and it seemed kind of to be some parts of my life. Is that you go down one way, and then you end up going another way, or you find a better way out of it?
0: And at what point, Coach did um, did Coach Blast become your high school coach? Because that seems to be a pretty big turning point, given his experience at Okie State.
1: Um, coach Blast was a huge influence on me, and that um, and and it's funny how you learn things as a As a young person, because uh, I really liked uh, the coaches that I had as as a young, as a young high school kid. I started out with a guy named Ben Dewey, who was just his philosophy. There wasn't such a thing as a bad kid. And and, and Coach Dewey loved everybody. And then we got this uh, coach, his name was Stu Rubine, who was a boxer, but he was a real spitfire. And I really liked Rubine, and I did well. And I won won the tournament as a junior and then blast came in and, and Rubine stepped back and it was almost one of those things of like, Hey, you know, you're taking our coach away. We really like this guy. So he didn't warm up to blast to begin with. And, and, and there was a group of us that we were, we are were kind of like we were, um, under a wait and see thing and uh, <laughs> coach blast, you know, and it, I mean, it's, it's the the classical young kids that think they know everything and um, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be hard on this coach. And then we ended up being such a tight knit group because of him. And especially because of his wife, his wife Sue became a huge thing of coming to matches and getting people involved and going to their house after dual meets, you know, and coach blast wrestled at Oklahoma state. And so for me, even Jimbo and Mike, and then Jim Harder, who went to West Point, is that for the first time we really started about started thinking about going to college. So uh, I think that's the thing that opened uh, Coach Blas um, is that the world was bigger than San Diego, California. It was bigger than California's tournament, and that there was a bigger place to go. And and he, in essence. <laughs> Guinness and sent me off to Oklahoma State. I don't know if I had much of a choice in it or not. But, <laughs> you know, I got a partial scholarship. I got a partial scholarship, went there, and and then uh, kind of the rest is history from there. I stayed there, and and then uh, after I graduated, I went in the Army.
0: Yeah, that's, the, that's a really interesting period because you get through your wrestling for Myron Roderick, one of the great coaches of all time. And so you have these kind of... By chance, by fate, run-ins with these great coaches, and obviously you put in the work and and get the most out of it. And you describe your freshman year at Oki State as something like a like a rite of passage, kind of like what the Native Americans used to do. So how how did that kind of impact you, and how did you get from Okie State to the 1971 Worlds in Bulgaria when you're ultimately teammates with Gable? What what kind of happened between those years to get to that point?
1: Um, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, uh when I started out there is that, uh, Oklahoma state was a dominating power of the time. And they had a Roderick was such a fireball and he did things a certain way. And Roderick and I had our differences and, um, and, and we kind of, you kind of go down that road, but I got to, um, be really good friends with, uh, a lot of guys on the team. One of the guys that impacted me was a guy named Yojo Yutaki, who mm. was my roommate as a, as a sophomore. was an Olympic champion and ended up being a three time national champion, and and so he, he kind of showed me the way um, on on what to do and how to go about things and to keep things in perspective. So. Um, Oklahoma state was interesting because they had the, the thing about Roderick was, and, and I found very few people. And I would almost say almost nobody. Um, Roderick had a very definitive philosophy and his philosophy was incredibly simple. And they said, basically, if you can, if we can take him down and you can get away from them, you can beat anybody in the country. And as a result of that, that's, that simple philosophy, Roderick taught me that I had to have a philosophy about wrestling. And then later on it morphed into I had to have a philosophy about life and that you don't deviate from your philosophy. And so what he did is in teaching us, you can take him down you can get away. You can beat anybody in the country. You don't need to reverse them. You don't need to ride them. Um, you don't need to do those things. And so what it does then or what it did for me in that instead of trying to be proficient in five things, five areas of wrestling, if I could be really good in just two, that's all I needed to get where I needed to go. And it allowed me in essence of spending 20 if I was working out 100 minutes a day Mm -hmm. and spending 20 minutes. On each area of wrestling, takedowns, escapes, reversals, pinning, uh, and riding, if I spent three times on my feet and twice at getting away, I would hypothetically be three times better on my feet and twice as good at getting away, I didn't need the other one. So it allowed me to realize that, and, it, and Roderick had a huge impact on me on that, you need a philosophy in wrestling but also you need a philosophy in life and most people don't have one in life they kind of kind of go through life and they deal with the bumps and bruises but then they don't understand what's going on so roderick had a huge impact on me that way which later um when i dealt with uh being a soldier and going to vietnam and going to iowa and different things they that that real basis made a huge huge difference in my life and and, and Roderick and i i think it was we were both pretty stubborn because i didn't even i didn't even wrestle my senior year in college um i quit um Roderick and i got into a deal and i quit <laughs> i did and i didn't wrestle my senior year i just stepped back with it and i was done with wrestling i was never going to wrestle again and uh and I was in ROTC, so I was going in the, in the service, so uh, I was done. But Roderick taught me some things, a lot of things, okay, of what would later impact my life. I, and we became great friends after that fact. Um, but I needed to go through those things to get to the place where I needed to be. And he helped me understand how critical a philosophy is and Even when we get to the uh, intensive camps later on, um, one of the things that every kid that comes to intensive camps has to do is he has to, in essence, write his own mission statement. Mm -hmm. What is your philosophy? What do you wanna do? And then what you do is you have a a guideline in which to live your life and you stay within those parameters. And doesn't mean you can't change them or adjust them as you go through life. But they keep you going in the right direction, I think. So Roderick and Oklahoma State had a huge, huge impact on my life, and even to this day, it's the same thing.
0: So is that what the J7 is for you? That kind of your code of conduct that you live by, that's morphed and developed over all these years?
1: Yeah, the the J7 is something is that the intensive camp um, when I was at at uh, Iowa. Um, kids go to camp and they and there's all, everybody's always had uh, technique camps and technique camps, and you go and you teach people techniques. okay, but there's different area, you know <clears throat> there's there, there's different areas, you know there's there's the technical part and then there's the medical metal, <clears throat> mental part and then there's the training part. And the object is that you need to be proficient in all of them. And most people leave out, all right, the uh, the instructional part about how do you get there. And so what it did as I started camp, uh, the intensive camp, the whole idea was to put kids, and, and here again, it was a reflection of what happened to me is that I went through ranger school, which is the hardest school that the military has as far as, as, uh, uh <clears throat> soldiers and stuff back then and it's 66 days long and the whole object of ranger school is they put you in a very structured environment and then they make you do more than you think you can do and what they do is they expand the way that you think they expand your ability and that's what the intensive camp did for me is uh, in dealing with that is that we wanted to bring that to kids is to show them that there's a way you can be better than where you are right now. But what it does is it takes work. It's hard and it's demanding, but it's not something you can't do. And so my parents were very good that you can outwork about 90% of all Americans. You can be in the top 10% of everything you do the rest of your life if you're willing to work. Most people aren't. Most people want great success without great effort. But most of the time, if you find people that reach huge heights. They're not extraordinarily smart. They don't have anything that's really extraordinary is what they do have. The majority of them is they have a great work ethic and it's something that you can learn and it's something that you can be taught. And so as a re- result of all this is that um, all these things that have been happened to me in wrestling with Roderick and then being at Iowa and then later on going to Minnesota these things all start coming together and they play out in these, in these words uh, at camp. And basically, <clears throat> my wife, too, named them the J7. And they started out when at camp is everybody talks about discipline, discipline, dedication, sacrifice, and hard work. Everybody talks about those. Those are f- four things coaches say: right? Discipline, dedication, sacrifice, hard work, Okay, but then you have to be responsible and then you have to be accountable to yourself and to others. And six of those J7 skills are about you. The seventh is about service, is that once you do something for yourself, then you have an obligation to help other people. And so then service comes in. So then we codified these six six things about you and the seventh one. About helping others, and uh, my wife uh, Sue named them the J Seven, and so that's what we teach. And I think that it very easily sums up um, if you want to go into a, into a philosophy about life. That's pretty much my philosophy is dealt with those with those seven words.
0: And so that came from. Would you say most of that came from Coach Roderick, or? The ranger school or kind of just a culmination over all those years?
1: No, it, it, came, it came from a culmination of those, those years, you know. The first four were easy. Right. Discipline, dedication, sacrifice, and hard work. Every athlete here is those four, okay? And so those came a culmination of all those different things, of wrestling, of school, of ranger school, of all these things. But then the more I talked about those things to young people at camp, at the intensive camp, two words always came in, is that you're responsible, okay, for doing them, which means it falls on you. And in the end, you are accountable to yourself, whether you do them or not. So those two words fit with the first six. Mm -hmm. And, And then the last one is, is that, as you look at faith in my life has been very super important with my parents started me down the road, is that then you have an obligation, right? Once you find out who you are and become the person you have, then I believe you have an obligation to help others, you know, okay? Um, There's a quote in the Bible that says, when you do good, don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing, okay? Do it in secret. And you're doing it, Okay, you're not doing it to get a reward, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And so over the course of time, when you do something enough time, these things start melting together. And they start, if you look at those seven words, they start becoming um, dependent upon each other. And as a result, if you live those seven words, you'll have a a pretty cool life, I think.
0: Pretty good life, indeed. And you talk about service as the last one. One story that comes to mind for me is that, you know, when you were still in the service, you decided to voluntarily go back to Vietnam. Why did you do that? And and kind of what was that story of how you decided to go back to Vietnam, even though you had already been there?
1: Well, I uh, I volunteered when I went
0: and
1: set the. To set the thing kind of straight is that back when Vietnam was going on, and and people can't realize young people, but they were drafting fifty thousand guys a month. If you didn't, you if you weren't in school, if you weren't in school, you were going in the service, right? And they were going to draft you. Fifty thousand guys a month were going in the service. Wow. My two older brothers, my two older brothers got drafted, um, and went to Vietnam. My younger brother joined and went to Vietnam. I, at Oklahoma State, you had to be in ROTC the first two years. It was mandatory back then. Wow. And I knew I was going to – because uh, there was a thing called the Morrell Act. In the, the federal government gave state governments land. Uh, in return, they had to have an ROTC program. Okay. So every, every state program, Michigan State, Iowa State, Oklahoma State, North Dakota State – they all had ROTC programs, and you had to be in them mandatory your freshman and sophomore year have to. I knew that since my brothers had gone, I was going to go, so I stayed in. And I figured it was a pretty simple deal. My brothers went in as privates, got $100 a month. The second lieutenant got $300 a month. So I figured, if I'm going to Vietnam, I'm going to get $300 a month, <laughs> not $100 a month it was it was that simple <laughs> and as re, and as a result <clears throat> when i graduated from college i was what's called a dms dmv distinguished military student distinguished military grad which they gave me a regular army commission which is the same commission that a west point cadet got so i was regular army which is, is kind of the army's way of picking soldiers or officers of the future. So I did that. <clears throat> I did that. And then um, when I was I, I was I wrestled in 71. And then um, I made the world team. But then I went to Vietnam. And so I wanted to wrestle again. And I asked the army to allow me to wrestle. And so in essence, what happened is the army sent me back um, in the middle of my tour in Vietnam. They sent me back to Russell and I made the world team in 71. And then I made the world team in 71 and then my unit stood down, which means the 173rd Airborne Brigade came back to the United States. So I didn't need to go back to Vietnam. I could just go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky and I'd only been in country for about six months, so I would have got credit for my whole tour, even though I hadn't been there the whole time. But I didn't believe that was right. <clears throat> so I asked to go back to Vietnam to finish up the rest of my tour. So they sent me back to Vietnam. i finished the rest of my tour with the first Cavalry division. And then I came back in 72, about three or four months before the Olympic – or three months before the Olympic trial. So I had about three months to get ready for the Olympic trial. So I came back. I just felt that they allowed me to let wrestle in the world championship. I could have got out of it, but I didn't feel that was right. So I requested to go back and finish my tour.
0: So that's the – okay, so that's why that all happened. I, I wasn't sure the timeline of 71 and, and when you went back to Vietnam, because 71 is – kind of the year you talk about as Gable having a big impact on you because you were on the Greco team. He had won the day before in freestyle. Then the next day you guys see him working out. Was that the first time Gable as a wrestler had a big impression on you?
1: Yeah, I mean, Gable, I mean, you grew up in the time that Gable had that was there because... When I was in the army, he was at Iowa State, which isn't the greatest. um,
2: uh,
1: I mean, there's not a lot of uh, love between Iowa State and Oklahoma State, you know. But you follow Gable, and he did. He was doing all these amazing things, and he had this streak going on. Then he got beat, you know. And then (laughs) being at a at a training camp with him uh, in '71. And, and being part of it, and seeing him there, and he was doing and training the way he trains, um, he makes an impact on you. And you kind of wonder, you know, what has this guy got that didn't benefit me down the road?
0: And so I mean, you guys go to the Olympics together. He and the freestyle team obviously have an incredible tournament. The Greco team is what you were a part of. You guys actually had your tournament delayed because of the uh the shooting. Um the the games wrap up and then 4 months later you're in Iowa. Then you meet this this crazy guy who I don't know what he did exactly, but what did John Marks do and why was he so influential to you and Gable because everybody talks about this guy?
1: Um the thing about the thing about what happened um you know, at the Olympic Games, when we were at the Olympic Games, the freestyle team wrestled. They were done. We wrestled. And then it's like the day we wrestled, the The thing that was hard on the Greco team is that we were there for two weeks training before we actually got a chance to wrestle. And it, and it really lost a lot of its luster. It was very kind of difficult to get mentally into the whole thing. It, it's hard for people to understand that, but... The night we went to bed, you know, in the middle of the night, you hear this boom, 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 you know, and you're laying in bed in the Olympic Village. And I said to my roommates, Bachman and a couple of other guys, I said, this sounds like gunshots. And and Bachman said, you idiot, there's no gunshots in the Olympic Village. Well, we woke up the next day and the terrorists had taken the hostages. And so what they did is that was our way in. So they put us on hold for 24 hours. And so we didn't get to compete that day. But what hurt me was we didn't weigh in the second day because we had already weighed in. And so a lot of guys that were cutting a lot of weight were a whole lot bigger that second day. So and then the games continued on and, and they became what they did. And then the whole thing went bad the way that the the police Orchestrated the whole thing. It was a big screw up, and
0: um, it, how, do, it how do you mean, condition. Coach? Like it was just too much of a delay, or
1: no, 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 <clears throat> no? Is that um, I'd have to sit and really ponder back and think about it. But um, they had they had uh, people and they had shooters where they were, they didn't have or supposed to have shooters. Um, the way that a terrorist. You have to go back and realize that back then there were no hostage rescue teams. There was, there was none of that stuff. A lot of the police officers there they didn't even have weapons. I mean, it was like really pandemonium. Think of doing anything for the very first time in a stressful situation, and they're totally not ready for it. And that's what happened at the Olympic Games. And it ended up with the hostages, a <clears throat> bunch of the hostages, Taking the hostages and a bunch of the hostages got killed.
0: Yeah, I just I can't even imagine the stress of that. And to your point, after you're there for two weeks, you're out of your element. Had to wear on you. And so, when the games wrapped up, did you think you were done with wrestling, or did you know you were going to go to Iowa and uh, coach with Kurt Miler and, and that whole crew?
1: Well, I was <clears throat> I was still in the army, so I had to get out. So I asked. Uh, I was a regular army officer, so I had to resign my commission. I, I didn't have a date of getting out, so I had to resign my commission. Then I got a hold of, um, I got a hold of Kurtzlemyer, and Gable was going there as an assistant coach. So I got a hold of Kurtzlemyer, and um, that was in September. And then I, <clears throat> I went to Iowa. I resigned my commission, got out. I think in January of '73, uh, second semester. Gable's first year there as an assistant coach. I went there as an assistant coach. And then I got picked up as the volunteer coach, in essence, and ran the wrestling club for Kurtelmeyer when Gable was there. And then um, Kurtelmeyer was there for about three years. And then he went up to become the athletic director. Gable got the head job, and then he asked me to stay on. As the assistant coach, and then kind of the rest is history.
0: That's when the run begins. I mean, you guys, I think I've heard you say you won seven or nine titles in your 12 years there, two with Colonel Meyer, and then you know the first year with Gable, you guys got third. But after that, you won every Nationals you ever coached at for Iowa. I mean, what was the segregation of duties for you and Gable? Because you hear a lot of people say Gable was more – kind of motivation and running the workouts, whereas you were the technique guy. You were the one developing the guys. How would you describe it? just kind of looking back on your time there?
1: Um, I think one of the things that, you know, you you think, say, you know, what do you learn? What did you learn at Ranger School? What did you learn with Roderick? Is that you learn different things being in different situations. One of the things is is the there's a need, there's certain needs that have to be fulfilled. Gable was very good at – because of who gable was is that is that here's this guy that has has this persona that everybody wants to be you know get out there work super 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 hard but there's there's two parts to being good there's there's a lot of guys that work super super hard but then the question is you got to make sure you're working on the right thing so i think the thing that happened is you know is that there was a great partnership that evolved between Gable and me in that both of us were good at something, and we meshed well to to together. But I think more importantly was um, if he dropped something, maybe motivational because he didn't he might not get he, he might not be real close to one athlete. Okay, I might have been, in that area, really good motivational with that a- athlete. Like Chris Campbell and I were, were super close. Okay. Right? And so I filled that deal there. As a team thing, say Gable was good at getting the whole team going, but individually what we did is we covered for each other. What he, what he missed, I picked up. And what I missed, he picked up. There were times that guys would do something and I would be harder on them than he would, but they would need that understanding from him, right? And there were other times when he was maybe softer on people and they needed the technical part, okay, that I was better at doing. And so what we found that over the course of time, we just complimented each other in that you learn that you don't have to know everything. What you have to do is find people that work well with what you do and you put the two of them together. And that's, I think that what we did. And I think that as it, as it just became in wrestling, people became aware of that and they didn't, most people would have not even noticed it. <clears throat> So it's very very hard.
0: Go ahead. I was just going to say you throw Mark Johnson in there, and, like, he's from my hometown. I'm a huge Mark Johnson fan. It sounds like at the beginning he was more of a kind of a workout partner, GA, but then he kind of stepped into that second role as well. So you you and Gable were leading the charge, and then Mark Johnson was there. How did he fit into things?
1: Well, Mark fit in just like everybody else is that the beauty of it is, for the most part, there wasn't a lot of egos to get in the way. I mean, in essence, Gable was going to be Gable. So no matter what you did, you could work out with a guy and you could spend all your time. And in the end, he's going to wrestle for Dan Gable, right? Even if you were in the wrestling room with every day, putting him through everything. So egos didn't get in the way a lot because everybody was there to try to help and make everybody else better. And there there was enough... Um, there was enough stuff going around for everybody to get some very positive reinforcement from it. And I think that that's what it was. And then it, and it became a very tight knit group. You know, it was almost like uh, it was almost like us against the rest of the country. Um, and so, so it became fun. It became, you know, can we do it again? Can we, you know, instead of, Oh, geez, I don't know if I can do it again. As opposed to, geez, let's see if we can do it again, you know? And that and and then it kind of personifies and then you get the kids along the same line believing and stuff like that. And the belief system starts taking care of itself and it gets people involved. They want to be involved in it.
0: When it had to help that you guys were still able to wrestle. It wasn't like they had to take your word for it. They could see you wrestling and they knew the story of the Olympics. And so every, that was fresh in everyone's mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, one of the things that you do, and I mean, even in the military, so then you go back to the military and it's like, um, you know, one of the things that, you you know, you, you hear your parents say over and over again, but it's so true, is you lead by example. You know, When you go into the wrestling room and you're 33 years old and 34 years old and you're you're thumping on some guys, okay, that are, you know, 19, 20 years old, okay, they look at you and have a different respect for you, and so, you know, you lead by example, and I think that's what we did, whether it was, whether it was Mark Johnson, whether it was Gable, whether it was me, we wrestled with the guys a lot, and you can spend the, you you can tell people, or you can teach people, and when you just get in a wrestling room and you go up in the wrestling room and do the techni- technical stuff with them. But as, if you're their partner, you can feel things that you can't, you can't get if you just are watching. So it required, okay, a different type of coaching, right? And we got pretty good at it at what we did and the way we did it. And so um, that's what we did. There was a lot of days that I would get there at seven thirty, and I'd, work out with kids until 7.30 for 9.30. I'd, I'd drill with three or four guys in the morning. And then you'd move on and on and on. But you get an idea and you get a feel for what they need and what they can do. And 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 actually, you, you also get a feel for what they can't do. I mean, some guys, um, you get in and some guys – Coaches are going to say, we're going to teach this high crotch as an example. And this kid, because of his body style, because this kid isn't ever going to do it, you know. And he can drill it and do it. And so you have to find what works for them, understanding by watching them, okay. And filming just started in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Back then, you had reel-to-reel, you know. And so you could break stuff down for the very first time because you couldn't get film like football coaches that had like um, Super 8 film. Uh, For the first time, you you had videotape and you could videotape and you could see things and you could break it down and you could say, okay, um, you need to do this, 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 and this. And then what you did is you got better at certain guys could do certain things. And no matter what is that in practice then, Our practices changed from the standpoint of we would have 20 minutes, 20-25 minutes, where guys could work on what they needed to work on. Okay, instead of okay, we're going to do high crotches today. Well, there's there might be seven out of 14 guys that have never high crotched anybody in their life, and they never will high crotch anybody in their life. You know, but invariably that's what coach that's what coaches are teaching. And they, and they don't get why, okay? And they, instead of saying, hey, what's the best thing for this guy, okay? So I spent a lot of time with Chris Campbell as an example, one of the first guys. <clears throat> we spent a lot of time drilling on certain things and he got really, really good at it, right? But what he did and what he could do, I mean, Chris Campbell with the power in his legs and his lower back, he could hit a full squat. I've seen him in a full squat in a match Full squat, pick a 190-pounder up like it was nothing. Well, most people can't do that. No. Okay? No. So you got to find something completely different for Eddie Banning to do. Okay? And so part of the coaching that got very good um, that I thought that we personified it at Iowa was is that we, we went to different guys who were good at certain things. And certain coaches went to certain guys. And there was never there was a lot of crossover for helping. Right? But what you did is this guy needs this instead of instead of making this kid do this, this is what this kid wants to do. That's half the that's half the problem right there, or half the solution. And then you can
0: go from there. Yeah, that's one of the things everybody says about gable and that regime in that time is that everyone felt not everyone but most guys felt that there was a real trust with the coaches gable yourself and mark johnson and the wrestlers and because of that you know they were able to be vulnerable you guys were able to be vulnerable and then progression happened because kind of the pleasantries were out of the way and there was just that that trust and kind of this bond between you guys that they say they had never experienced previously before in wrestling. And so that seemed like one of the key ingredients was just the trust you guys had with the guys and the coaches.
1: Well, it was a different time too, is that you have to realize that most of the coaches, we were young. Okay. And the kids were young. So we did a lot of stuff together. Um, Later when I went to Minnesota, one of the things that becomes very important is to build the team. You have to do stuff together. And so we did things together. I mean, we went to parties together. We had experiences together. Um, One of the biggest things was camp. When I started camp way back in 74, is that we went to camp all summer long. Think of taking 20 guys going to camp for 66 days, and you're all together for 66 days, okay? You don't have any school. You don't have any distractions because you're away from home. You're there to teach wrestling. You're there to train in the day and to go have fun with your, with your buddies okay, in the evening when you get some time off. And so it's a very bonding. It brought people together. And that's the whole thing what you do as you talk about a team is that what can we do? So partially my job was to bring these guys together bring them together, do things together so that we do it as a team. Because the difference between wrestling, and people don't, I don't think they realize this very much. Wrestling, okay, how do you sum up your year in wrestling? How do you sum it up?
0: What happened at nationals most of the time, it seems like.
1: That's it. That's it, exactly. Okay, so to paraphrase what you're saying, what happens at nationals, if you're in high school, did you get on the podium that's how you sum it up mhm okay that's all about who the person that's right <laughs> okay. there's no what there's no what team there you go so in order to get that bonding what i tried to do was do a lot of stuff to bring all the guys together in different deals we had we had a we had. A, at Iowa, we had some pig roasts at the end of the year where we'd have the team, okay? And we'd have this pig roast, and we'd roast some pigs, and we had a, a fun time, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. One year that we won the Nationals, we invited everybody to come. I mean, there was like a couple thousand people that came.
0: <laughs> man. Had to be some just oh, yeah. legendary times The oh, people and the brotherhood. There must have been just something really, oh. really special.
1: Well, and every year it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, and I mean <laughs> even to the point, even to the point to where you know we didn't want to have any problems, and and it was a social deal, and there wasn't any there wasn't any problems thing. But even the the sheriff in, in Iowa City, I mean they would send officers there to make sure that there was. There wasn't any real problems. and it was it was a social thing to bring people together, and that was that was partially my job was to organize things to get get us in front of people a different way, and and that was just a small deal. of It was fun
0: would that uh, you look forward to it. Would Roy Carver come to those, or were those a little bit below his level? Um,
1: Carver, I'm trying to think if Carver ever did, but. If Carver was in town, Carver would have come. I mean, Carver had, uh, had a way of, of inviting. Well, Carver invited us down to his place in uh, Florida. And he had, a. <clears throat> I think it was Florida. He had a place on, uh, I think he was on, I can't even remember how high it was. But he had the whole penthouse.
0: It was and Florida, so we though, went you're da- right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we went down there. We went down there a couple times. And um, Carver was one of those guys that, you know, he understood what excellence was and he wanted to be a part of it. And he helped us. And he was, he was like, he, he was really a good guy when you just were around him one-on-one-on-one. You know? And it was interesting to see a guy, you know, <clears throat> he was worth, at that time, I think, two or three or $400 million. Um, so I mean, he had about everything there was, and when you went down to his place, I mean, it was uh, you would look at the different stuff in there and think about it, but it was it was a pretty amazing place for the athletes to get a chance to see something that I mean, it was all by NCAA rules, right? Uh, but yeah, but the whole thing of having these having this pig roast, and and this pig roast grew every year, and and originally, you know, you go back to John Marks, John Marks. Um, was my best friend in Iowa City. And um, when I got there, John worked for Harold Nichols in Ames when Gable was there. And he worked for Harold Nichols Wrestling Equipment Company. And then when Gable... And John was from Iowa City, though. That's where his mother lived. So when Gable came to Iowa City, Marks came back. And my uh, thing with John and his nickname was Jono is my thing is I came into the wrestling office my first day on campus <clears throat> and I didn't have a place to, to live. And Jono was in the office and I kind of introduced myself, you know, looking for Kurtelmeier. Jono asked me about a place to live and I said, no, I don't have TM. Look, just come on. He grabbed me, took me out the door, went around until he helped me find a place found a place for the second semester, and then uh, we lived together for the next three years. uh, And he was in charge of the recruiting. And all the guys that came, those first guys, Greg Stevens, Chuck Yagla, all those guys, John O. recruited. He was the recruiter way back when they didn't have recruiters. And he did it all. He did it
0: all. Do you think he was a plant at Iowa State by Curtomitter to get Gable there?
1: Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that Have you heard that story? Just one of those th- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard it, and it's, you know, it's like a lot of conspiracy theories when you look back. It sounds good. John was John was was pretty he was a ex-Marine, very proud of being a Marine. He's an ex Marine. But I mean he had his own he had his own way about him. John O wasn't taking any B of off, off of anybody. And and to my knowledge, nobody was gonna tell O what to do. I mean <laughs> he weighed about 200, 260 pounds. He was about six four and just the nicest guy in the world. You know, but he loved wrestling and then came back to Iowa City handled all the recruiting for the first three or four years. And all those guys that <clears throat> we went out, because at that time, Gable was a very, people don't <clears throat> understand, Gable was a, was a real introvert, okay? Mm-hmm. And so, so someone had to go out and talk and get these people involved. And this is before all the rules that you have with uh, recruiting now and visits and all that kind of stuff. And so somebody had to go out, and Kirtlmeier, who was the architect of this whole thing, Kirtlmeier was super smart, way before his time. Uh, and he and he knew how to utilize people um, where they were very good. And Jono would make contact with people, and Kirtlmeier would talk everything, then Gable, and then what would happen is, it would kind of keep Gable away until um, they had a visit or they brought him on campus and then it was geez i'm around dan gable this is a huge thing so they worked it very very well in the early years of recruiting and then <clears throat> john who did it and then after i got there then i started doing it and <clears throat> and, uh, and it just went from there
0: now coach the last thing i have to ask you about Iowa before we get to minnesota is for this documentary i'm doing one of the scenes we're going to cover is the 1984 trials between randy lewis and leroy uh leroy smith and i've interviewed both of those guys talk to your know, everyone there's to talk to you about it except you were you coaching at that event in, uh, in the 84 trials um yeah.
1: yes yeah i was yeah
0: man that is one of the most yeah. interesting periods of, of wrestling when you think about you know randy had one match two he put his plastics on to go running they overturn it. He wrestles match two again, then forfeits match three, and then the arbitration where the judge ordered a wrestle off the next day. It's like one of the craziest things um, I've ever heard about. But my question was, is that where the Okie State-Iowa rivalry really took off, in your opinion?
1: Um, I think the, the rivalry was was already there. I mean, I was from Oklahoma State. I mean, what, what was happening, I think – I'm not saying that that didn't have things to do with it, but um, Oklahoma State, you have to look at it as the rivalry I think started is when you're beating a team and they don't have a chance, there's not much of a rivalry there, right? I mean, you could say the same thing of Iowa State and Iowa. When did the rivalry begin? Um, It it began as Gable left Iowa State because – Iowa State at that time was very, very, very good. You know, 68, 69, 70, 71. Oklahoma State was very good. And so what you're having is you're having one team being replaced by another team. And that's where the rivalry comes from, I think. There's not much of a rivalry when you slug somebody to death and they don't have a chance. Okay it's when it gets to be really, you win one, I win one, you win two, I want to win one now. And that, and I think that that's what happens. And I think that's what happened with uh, the Oklahoma state, you know, and the thing with Leroy and Randy, you know, and it was sad. It was sad because I like uh, Leroy Smith a lot. I have a lot of respect for him and it was a bad deal what they did and how they did it. And, um, when they did what they did, one of the coaches went out and basically one of the coaches went out and was responsible for starting the whole thing. It wasn't Randy Lewis. It wasn't – but another coach went out and started the whole process. Okay? And the guy started the process because he felt he had an obligation to Randy Lewis. And it didn't, it didn't mean anything, anything about Leroy Smith. It just – the way it was done, it, it wasn't very good. It was very bad in that they made made him have this match and then they made him have another match like right away. And it wasn't really a fair
0: deal. And they had asked to extend it to the next day, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. They asked to extend it, okay, and it could have been done very easily. It would have been done and it would have been everything. But the emotion was so high that what happened is, is that you're getting a kid when he's down and then you're throwing all this stuff on him and then you're saying it's fair. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair at all.
0: I mean, the first moment you guys heard that he had to re-wrestle match too, it must have been almost hard to even believe that that was actually the case because the call was so clear, in my opinion at least. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you can go back, you can go back and look at the... Look at the film. Nobody does that, and, I, and when everybody starts getting into in a deal, because there there gets to be a thing, and I mean it's been a long time. So I would have to sit and really think exactly how it went down. But I think to the point that there was a call that they went back through arbitration and they gave some points that they didn't, they shouldn't have gave. And I think it, it, it seems to me is that who it had to do with uh, it had to do with uh, Randy. Randy instituted the move so that it wouldn't be points against him, but they didn't give it that way. They gave it like two and two or something. I can't even remember exactly what it is now. Right. But it was a it was a very marginal call. And if, and if, uh, and I don't think that you could uh, back then you could have awarded that points that way. And as a result, if they didn't award points that way, it was like this. If they didn't award points that way, the match was over, Randy won. It was that simple. And what they did is the arbitration thing made it a case that it wasn't, it wasn't the right call. It was the right call. It all went down to was it the right call? not the right call. Everything else behind it doesn't really make any difference. It all goes to the call. If the call was right, Randy was on the team, he won it fair and square. It's over. Okay? If the call was wrong,
0: then you can argue then you can argue about the the arbitration. You understand what I mean? Totally. And because like there was really no re and the crazy thing is that they protested match one too no reason to do that they protest match two also very questionable reason to do so and then you know again even if they did say that the call was wrong and they had to re-wrestle match two they could have done it the next day but instead they did it right away and you know uh, Leroy actually teched him. which you know the more amazing thing to me is that Randy's performance gets undershadowed by this because Leroy was second in the world in 83 and even though Randy had beaten him in the past he was he had to be the favorite coming in just based on what he did the previous year and then the the other question I had was it back then it seems like the role of the Olympic coach was different than it is now because Gable was expected to take the side of Leroy, but you know, knowing how close you guys all are, I, I could see why he didn't. It was that was that the main kind of contentious point with USA wrestling is that Gable wasn't backing the Olympian versus his guy.
1: Um no, I think that I think that it wasn't Gable. Gable didn't have anything to do with it. Okay? Really. I mean Gable got drawn in after the fact there was another coach that instigated the whole thing that was very close to Randy Lewis. Right. And he did it because he did it because the call wasn't right. And it wasn't fair with what they did. Right. And so Gable was pulled in after the fact, really. So Gable, it it, it really didn't have anything to do with Gable at all. I mean, <clears throat> then once it, it it goes back to the goes back to the same thing and it's still contentious here 20 years later however it goes back to the fact that was the original call right or wrong if it was right matches over randy lewis is on the team if it's wrong then you can argue about everything else you see what i mean
0: absolutely and you know, looking back on it, they got things sorted out. It was a really weird way to get there, but Randy ended up representing the team, you know, even with that knee injury. And this is right about the time where you leave Iowa. And then, so, let's jump forward to Minnesota. You get there, and I've heard you say one of the reasons you took the job was that Minnesota was the only D1 program in the state, which is hard to believe given the health of Minnesota High School Wrestling. But, you know, what did they finish the year before you got there, Coach? What kind of program were you walking into at Minnesota in 87
1: oh geez i can't remember where they were they were like like, i don't even remember like top 10 or not even that no no they were i don't even think they were a top 20 team when i got there um i could go back and look but i'm not i'm not sure i'm i'm not really good on all those statistics and stuff but they weren't they weren't a top 20 team and um but like you said, the one thing that Minnesota had that most schools or schools don't have is that they were the only game in town, right? So if you went to Iowa. I mean, if you go back and here again, if you, if you go back and you look at history, right? What do you have? You are you're you're your split your talent. Do you want to? Most kids do they want to go out of state? No, they want to stay where, stay oh. close to home.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, and so, okay, if you stay in Pennsylvania, you got Clarion, you got Penn State, you know, you got Penn, you know, if you, got, if you go to Oklahoma, you got Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, stay in Iowa, you got Iowa, Iowa State, Michigan, Michigan State, you kind of understand where I'm going, right? The thing about Minnesota is just one school, one division, one school. So hypothetically, if you just, you don't split the best talent, if you get the best kids from Minnesota every year, you got a shot. And that's what you do. So then you, going back to what I said about Roderick, you have to have a what? Philosophy. You have to have a philosophy. So, okay, so your philosophy comes is we're going to get, okay, the majority of our kids from Minnesota – because we'll get all the good ones. And then we'll just got to pick two or three out from any other state, okay? So you develop a philosophy on how you're going to get there. And then you implement the philosophy. So you try to shut your borders, keep all the good guys in state, and then get the good guys from out of state, okay? And so then then you use that along the same lines of, Kids that want to go somewhere, if they're struggling at a state where there's a couple really good people and they don't have a chance, come to Minnesota. You got a chance to be a starter right away. So you use all those benefits to build your program.
0: And yeah, I mean Minnesota, the University of Minnesota is so big in the state that you know there there are pro teams, of course, unlike Iowa. But man, it is super super popular. And so you took this program that. I've watched some of the old tapes. There's like a couple hundred people maybe there, and you start building a program around it, and you really put a lot into the promotion of it. Would, would you say that 94 class, that, which would have been seniors in 99, that had to be a big turning point for you? Because up to that point, it must have been really hard to change kind of the belief system of those guys, since really Minnesota had never won a Big Ten title since the 50s. Well, it's...
1: What you're trying to do is you're trying to, I mean, this is the buzzword, but you're trying to build a culture. You're trying to build a team. You're trying to build a philosophy. And that takes time to a degree, right? But you gotta, as the guy said, you gotta get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus, right? So it says, this is what we're doing. We're here to win the national tournament. We're here to be a dominant force in wrestling, okay? So now either get on the bus with us or get off the bus. Because if you're on the bus and you don't want to be there, you're going to get in our way. Okay. And so you, you have to see who's with you and, and who's not. And then what you do is you start building on those. And, and what you do is you spend time. If you get good people that want to be good, as my dad said, you can outwork 90% of all people. You can be in the top 10 percent of everything you do if you just work harder and longer. So you start looking, and then you start identifying what kind of kids do you want. If you look at our first recruiting classes, they weren't the best kids in the country, necessarily. I mean, we had some good recruiting classes, okay, but some of the guys weren't the, you know, they weren't the, the kids that now make the headlines. And so, what you do is we tried to find guys that we thought, number one, believed in what we said. And number two, or or maybe number one, well, they got to believe in what we said. But number two is, are they coachable? Will they listen to what I have to say? If you listen to what I have to say, I think I can get a lot of you there. And that's who we look for. And that's who those guys came. You know, a guy named Dave Dean, um, first year, came in um one time we were wrestling at uh, and and he was a starter the year before and he was having he had a fairly good career and stuff and we were wrestling in a dual meet and after the dual meet he came in I'll never forget this he came in he and he said I know what you're talking about now and I know what I have to do what you've been telling me to have to do I'm gonna do it and About six weeks later, he was in the NCAA final. And he clicked the switch just like that. And when you have kids that start listening to you, instead of, I know it all, is that my job is to get you there, okay? And I'll get you there. Just pay attention to what I do. When you get a whole team of those guys, it's amazing what you can do.
0: And it's like, why do you think some guys are resistant to that when they know that you've, been at iowa you know what it takes to win and then you're at minnesota and i know it took some time to break through but why do you think guys are resistant to that when they've seen the results <clears throat> because the one thing that the one thing that you're not thinking about
1: okay Ryan? yep the one thing you're not one thing you're not thinking about is all right and the one thing that most people fail to take into account and it's one of the most important things to take in account because it's very predictable it's called human nature it's called ego, okay? Most people would rather be right and not get what they want than to be wrong, okay, and do something different and get what they want. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Okay? It's human nature, okay? You'll find as a coach, I mean, I found as a coach, the guys that will come in and say, Hey, Jay, tell me what I have to do, and I'll do it. And say, okay, this guy can go a long way or most of the time. Doesn't get there every time, but he gets there more times than the other guys do. Because how many guys you know that, that have all the talent in the world, and they never make it?
0: Too many. Say, Far too many.
1: Yes. There's a quote, and it says, there's nothing more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Okay. One of my favorite quotes: Talent doesn't get you there. Okay, most of the time, heart gets you there. It's very easy to put talent in to teach people technique. It's incredibly difficult to teach people heart. Okay, it's like Dave Dean when Dave Dean said, "I get it." Okay, get all the heart of a warrior. Okay? And then all of a sudden, boom, there he is. See? Morty Morgan hard, had to be one of those guys for you,
0: too, though, right? When he came in, I mean, he was I know he went to North Dakota State first, but he wasn't a big-time recruit. But uh, he seems like a guy who just completely bought in as well, him and his brother.
1: Yeah, the whole Morgan family did. Yeah, you know. There's lots of them that came, and they just bought in. You know, Keith Nix is a little kid that <clears> – <throat> Came from Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, nobody thought much of him, and he made the NCAA finals, right? Okay? And he wasn't a super hard worker, okay? Right? But what you get kids, <clears throat> he's had an unbelievable amount of talent, okay? But when you have talent, what happens most of the time is you, a lot of people with talent don't get there because they get to a point where talent's understand what I'm
0: saying? Absolutely.
1: There's an inverse relationship. People that have talent don't have a great work ethic because they what? They don't have to have a great work ethic because their talent gets them there. On the other hand, a lot of people that have a great work ethic don't have what? Talent. (laughs) There you go. Okay? So the key is when you get a kid, like Keith Nix was, and... and (laughs) His next coach, he'd always talk to him, coach, why are you making me do this hard stuff? You know, <laughs> and then what you do is, is you didn't, I didn't give Keith a choice. Keith, you'd be here at 630 tomorrow morning. we coach, I don't want to run. Keith, I don't care if you want to run or not. You're going to run. So in spite of himself, okay, we helped him get there by making him do what he wasn't good at. Okay. And he ended up an NCAA finalist as a true freshman. Pretty amazing deal. And then when he got away, and, and Keith Nix, as an example, needed that discipline. Okay. And when he got away from it, he fell way back down. Okay. So the key is, when you're, when you're in life, the key is to recognize what you need, what thing you don't have, and find somebody that can give it to you one way or another, and then latch on to them. If it's discipline, find the guy that's going to make you discipline. If it's hard work, find the guy that's going to make you work hard. If it's dedication, get the guy that goes to practice 6 o'clock every morning, go with him. okay. If it's hard work, go out and chop wood with him. All right? Find the thing that's keeping you from getting where you want to do. People don't usually... Not get there because of what they do really well. They don't get there because of what they do very poorly. So you get more progress by fixing your weaknesses than you do by continually working on your strength. But what do most people want to do? They work where
0: they want to do what they're good at.
1: That's right. So they go in the working room and they work at they work on they. they work on their. They're takedowns because they love takedowns, but yet they get beat because they get ridden. They can't get away. So it becomes important in your life, not only in wrestling, but in life. What am I not very good at? If I can get good at what I'm bad at, okay, I'm going to leap way ahead than where I should be. But that requires what? What's the first J7? Requires what? Discipline. Discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. Okay.
0: What about That's someone like Le- what about someone like Lesnar, coach? Where, <laughs> obviously, you guys spot this guy, one of the uh, <clears throat> the most athletic heavyweights we've seen of all time. He just happened to be there when we had a great group of heavyweights with Stephen Neal, Kerry McCoy, um, you know that whole crew, really tough West Ham from Iowa. But you know when he came in, what was he like? Did he have to transition and develop some hard work or he already have that coming in
1: no he had to do the same thing okay is that um i mean he he here here is a kid that comes in and he has it all but you got to make him you know tougher than he's than he's used to all right and he grew up on a farm but just because he grew up on a farm doesn't mean that he has a hard work ethic and so you made him do things that are hard okay we used to have a thing that uh, when guys would come in, um, when freshmen would come in, <clears throat> right? Look at it. Okay, you're talking about things that impact, right? When you go into the military, what's the first thing that you do? What's the first thing that you do that everybody that goes in the military has in common? What is it?
0: Shaves their head? No.
1: Nope. Well, yeah, that know. happens. So
0: what, <laughs> Total what guess. They,
1: what, they, what they do is when they go in the military – the thing they have in common is they go to basic training okay right okay that means they all have what
0: shared they experience. all have the
1: same that shared experience they have the same basis okay so what we used to do is guys that would come in we would put them through a month a month of our own training okay
0: they'd have to and
1: i can't even remember but i mean it was all different i had it on a schedule Okay, all the freshmen, all the transfers, they're all coming in at 6.30 every day. Okay, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, they're lifting and running. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, they're doing legs and and technique and stuff. So after this month of very hard stuff, they have done what? They've done their what? They've done their basic training. Okay, they have earned their way into the group. So now they have a what? Commonality. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Brock had to do the same thing. Same thing. Sheldon and then... Benjam... Go yeah, ahead, Sheldon Benjamin. Sheldon Benjamin had to do the same thing. They all had to do the same thing. They... And it's the object of get them together because now they all have a what? Shared experience. They, they can all relate to it. Because nobody can just got in.
0: They had to what their way in. Had to work their yeah, way yeah. in, and that's I had Zach that's Sanders right. on, and I've had a lot of the Minnesota guys on Lawrence Thorne and Sanders. Zach Sanders was telling me that if you're a freshman and you're redshirting, you had to actually do a lot more than the starters. Which I kind of thought, hey, you're not starting that year, maybe you're off the hook. He said you'd have to do more, and that kind of goes into what you were saying is you know, those guys who are in that first year together, and if they're not on the lineup, you know, they're they're kind of going through that as freshmen together so that next year when you come into it, you know, you have that, that shared experience.
1: Well, and go back to what we talked about philosophy. Okay. What's the thing about philosophy? What did we say? Then what's the bottom, what was one of the bottom things you can, what, you can, what 90% of the people at work? There you go. Okay. It's a skill, which means it can be what can Can be be learned.
0: learned. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. So if you learn it, all right, then you're no different. Yeah, I went through the same thing. and coach, you know, Jay took me out and ran my butt off, all right, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. So now they all have what? Okay, you ever been around some soldiers? They'll all tell you about what? Basic training. Right. And they'll know, who they'll know who their DIs were, their drill instructors. They'll call them by name, okay? See. <clears throat> so they have a commonality. And that's what you're trying to do about this team is you're trying to get them so, to where they're a team. So they have a common bond, a okay? a common mission so that they'll take care of each other. So when they go out, I mean, this will sound stupid, but when they go out, when they get in trouble, they usually get in trouble as a group. Okay? <laughs> Cause, Cause they're all doing the same stupid stuff. All right. But at least you know where they are. Okay. And it, and so it's it's a different kind of thing than most people are are used to.
0: Now I I think that speaks to the culture you built there. Just two more things before we let you go, Coach. I you know I have to get into some of the the championship years at Minnesota. Um, you know what jumps out to me is that you look at '99. You guys won the Big 10s for the first time, and from what I've heard you say is that that's a year where everyone was bought in. Everyone did all the work, and. Man, the crazy thing about life is that sometimes it just doesn't happen for you. You know, how long did it take for you to get back on the horse after getting second in 99? Because I know that that was a devastating loss for you and for your team. So how long did it take for you to get back on the horse? And was that a, a big kind of refl- self-reflection time for you?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like uh, sometimes you get mad at God, you know. And I was mad at God. It's like, we've done this, we did it the right way, we did this, we did this, and then it's like the rug gets pulled out from underneath you. And it's like, I was disappointed and I was mad. I was mad at God. Is that, geez, we've done this, 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 and this, and you don't let us have this, you know? And then it took about three or four months, I guess, for me to say, hey, it wasn't my time, okay? wasn't my time. It wasn't right. Right. You've got a better plan. All right. I get it. Right. I'm okay. Let's get back at it. And so it probably took me three or four months. And then what happened is what's happened many times in my life. What happens is we come back in 2000 and then we come back in 2001 and we do something that no one's done before, you know? So it's like, the reality of it's God's better got a better plan. He's when just I, always one step ahead. He's it, always one step ahead of us.
0: Yeah, and I've heard you say that quote. You know, you never know when you're three feet away because that was very much the case. You look at '97; Gable gets his send off. You guys get third. Have some incredible wrestlebacks that Saturday morning. Had some guys get third, and you got third as a team. '98, you get second. '99, you get second. Absolutely heartbreaking loss, and then 2001, we come back. Now we're at Carver. <laughs> you guys have six in the semis. I'm getting chills talking about this. You guys have six in the semis. <laughs> I am. This is such a great story. You guys go 0 for six in the semis, and you. I had to imagine just you kind of having those conversations with yourself again. You're maybe feeling sorry for yourself, or you're kind of angry with God, as you put it. Again, where were you at going into that Saturday morning wrestle background in 2001 at Carver?
1: I mean, we had a team meeting. It was really a cool team meeting. We had a team meeting that night after the whole thing. I mean, we were, we were, I think the word we would use is disappointed, you know? I mean, it, it was like the same thing. It's like it's happening all over again, right? But it was like, okay, all right, what do we got to do? This is what we got to do, guys. It's in our hands, right? let's go do it. And that's basically exactly what they did. Okay, it's like, yeah, this isn't the way we wanted it to be. Right. And most times, God's got a better plan or a smarter plan, right, than we do. So we could have pushed a couple in. I mean, think about it, we could have in, in that 2001, we could have pushed a couple guys into the finals, and we could have won, right? it have been like every other team. Mm-hmm. But what did we do? We didn't have anybody in the finals. And we became the only team. What God gave us was something more special than anybody. We became the only team in history, 120-some years, that without a champion and with 10 All-Americans, won the
0: national tournament. So, and, you a, a- <laughs> and against a team that you helped build the dynasty. You built the dynasty from 72 to 84, and those were the teams you were beating, um, You know the Iowa teams. That was your nemesis. At Carver, unbelievable. At,
1: at Carver. So so looking back on it, okay, life can only be lived going forward. Oh, I mean, this is a great quote. Life can only be lived going forward. It only makes sense looking backwards, okay? So what did he do? He held us back, okay, and allow us to come together to do something unbelievably special, okay? No champions, so nobody on the team could say it was just me. All 10 guys gave something. Pretty amazing. Amazing. You know, when you think. <laughs> and, it's, and, and it's like you look at guys and you got six championships or eight or three or whatever you can say well hey that's great okay, okay. but what do you got to be happy for it's like guys look what God gave these ten guys ten guys he gave these ten guys something that nobody else has ever done okay. that's pretty special
0: it is amazing. It's never been done since. Even if you forget the part of no finalists, ten all Americans is amazing. Amazing, but the fact that there were no finalists, what a uh, what a what an unbelievable performance! And I've heard that throughout that season, you kept a sticky note in your journal or your practice plan that had three and O and then ten on it. Why, why'd you do that, Coach? Well, I I I, I had the
1: to... I still got that sticky note, too. No somewhere. way. Wow. Yeah. I got that sticky note somewhere. I'll have to look where it is. It seems like there was there was three things there. There was 3-0. Oh. oh three and 0 oh, 10. There were three things. There was 3-0, oh, 10, and NCAA was on the sticky note. Okay. And so, and so in my, in my day timer, you know, the day timer is Go okay. Um, in my daytimer, I moved that sticky note every day. And the reason I moved it every day is that I learned that we get so distracted with our life. We forget something, a lot of things in life. So that sticky note could be anything. It could be your wife and your kids and what you want to do. It's, and, and it could be sticky notes for different parts of your life. And my sticky note for wrestling was 3-0. Well, it, was, it was 3-0, 10, NCAA. It meant 3-0 is that we would beat Iowa in the dual meet, the Big Ten, and the Nationals. 10 means the only way that we could win would be to have 10 All-Americans, and NCA meant that we would
0: be the NCA champion.
1: Yeah. I carried that with me my that whole year. And I still got it
0: somewhere. I love that. I'm a big sticky note fan myself and I don't know if I've ever kept one that long but it's just it's just powerful. That's that that's the way it kind of panned out. The last thing I'll ask you coach before we sign off here is you mentioned, you know, after that 2001 season as you're walking into the tunnel at Carver, you kind of had this white light experience that it's something where you said you've only experienced it a couple of times in your life, and I don't know if it's kind of coming back to you what I'm talking about here, but I've heard you say this in a couple of interviews, but you know, what did you mean by that white light experience, and kind of what what does it mean to you, and how do, how, do, how do you describe it, I guess?
1: Um, I think you describe it as you're walking into a place where, where a few years before um, – when I had left Iowa, I had resigned, I'd left, I kind of left, you know, under a cloud, so to speak, Mm -hmm. maybe. I mean, not a bad thing, but I resigned because of some things that happened, you know? And then you go back in and everything has changed. Everything is different, you know? And it's like, we get so caught up in the now, sometimes we forget um, about what's going on. And so to be able to go back, I mean, of all the things that go to think, okay, to think about the 99 team, to think about, you know, the first, <clears throat> we lost more dual meets my first year at Minnesota than I had lost on all the other teams that I had been on combined up to that time. <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> That's crazy. Here. Here.
2: here,
1: here, here. This is a true story. This is a funny story.
2: Okay.
1: But it's true that we were wrestling uh, Michigan and Michigan. and I think it was Michigan and Michigan State. And we wrestled Michigan and we got, we got beat. And, um, and so we were going to wrestle, I think it was Michigan State next. I'd have to look back, but I'm pretty sure. I thought sure it, was it was Michigan anyway, State
0: first, and then they got beat. You did the practice, and then Michigan is when Dave or uh, Dave Dean got pinned in that roll through. Is that the story? Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. And then I was freaking livid. Livid. I mean, I we had another practice, another practice after that. We walked out of the door, and all 10 guys, all 10 of them, Went to the other car, and I went to one car by myself. And they were all stacked in the other car. They were laying across each other like Lincoln Logs. Okay, and none, none of them got in the car with me. They were all in the other car. Okay, you know, and it was it was hard and it was harsh. Okay, but that's what got us together. I mean, it's and I mean to this day we laugh about it.
0: What, they were mad that you um, put them through those? So you wrestled Michigan State. You put them through a brutal practice after they wrestled Michigan. You put them through a second brutal practice. And what, they had a, not a mutiny on you, but they had a little division (laughs) kind of coming up because they were, must have been a little frustrated with you.
1: Yeah, they just didn't want to be around me. Um, (laughs) So, I I mean, it was, you know, it's like, hey, guys, this is a hard deal, you know. Actually, a lot of those stories, they probably, those guys, you should get a hold of it. You should ask Dave Dean. You should call Dave Dean and ask. Those guys will probably remember those stories way better than I do. But I mean, it was, that was the gist of it is that after it, they walked out, man, they didn't want nothing to do. Okay. But, but that's what those shared deals, that's what builds. The bonds—that's what brings you together. Because I think the one thing that you know is, you're all there for each other, right? I would say, <clears throat> I would say they think that they could pick up the phone and call me today and ask me to do anything, and I would do it for them. And I actually have got myself in trouble for doing stuff for kids like that. Sure. But, you know, you do what you're going to do, and you don't worry about it. Okay. One thing you learn as a soldier, okay, especially if you're in command. Your job is to take care of your men, to take care of people. You know, and sometimes, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it's harsh. But uh, it's, you know, you get around kids and people. it's, It's a great, great
0: place to be. Well, and that's kind of your whole life is giving back, and you've done that through so many areas, uh, through coaching, through your camps, and through uh, I'm sure so many uh, acts of generosity we don't even know about. But you know, coach, the last question we always ask everybody is how did wrestling change your life? And obviously, that's the name of this podcast. It's kind of kind of obvious asking someone like you how did wrestling change your life because it is your life. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on how has wrestling shaped you, or what lessons does it distill to people who uh, to engage with the sport.
1: Well, I think the biggest thing about wrestling, okay, is as far as changing my life, is it it, it gave me a, a constant. Um, I think it gave me a constant of as you go through life. Um, it taught me a lot of things about life through wrestling, and put me around really good people that allowed me <clears throat> to learn things and to. Build a philosophy. I mean, when I—it's like I said about that other quote. I mean, I, I'm big on quotes, but life can only make sense, <clears throat> you know, looking back. I right? can only be lived going forward, but it can only make sense living back. Is that you? You go back and you say, okay, geez, God, you get this guy like Blast that sends you on this trip, and you get a guy like Roderick that teaches you the importance of a philosophy and then you go into the military where you get a chance to put this philosophy in practice around people then you get out of the military <clears throat> you get a chance to go and see performance at a high level and how people react to it you know you're around someone like Gable that you can interact with and you can learn from you can pull from and then you get a chance to be in an environment to where you have all these teams so you can see what true excellence is and how hard it is you know how hard it is to stay at the top it doesn't get easier it's harder right and then you see how it changes people and you can see the benefit of once you get there how you can pass it on to other people and how you can help people you know you know and then you get to the point to where you see where the service component is that okay I'm here now how can I use this to help others because there's <clears throat> there's another there's a whole bunch of mes out there right now that I was when I was sixteen years old. so can you open a door for them so you know it 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 it's the old life goes on it goes on, and it's like it's not from you what you take from this world is what you give back. So the question is, you got to ask, what are you giving back okay. So, I mean, I've done – I spent almost 10 years of my entire life in the summer
0: with high school kids,
1: in camp, living in a dorm room.
0: Okay. How many years have you have been 10, doing those for, Coach? How many years now?
1: 42 years. Figure out 42 years times – you know, figure out I don't know how many days it is. 42 years, 44 um, I mean, it's 66 days for 42 years. Right. I don't know how many days that is. Me yeah. either. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, um, uh, it's a lot of days. You know? 2,700 so, days. You
0: know,
1: yeah, divided so by 350. About eight years of my life I spent in a dorm room with high school kids. Okay? <clears throat> but I liked it. I liked it because The kids that come to the intensive camp, they're coming there because they want to be better, okay? So we're all – the beauty of it, the intensive camp for me, um, is the beauty of the whole thing is uh, there are guys there that want to be good, okay? And they're saying simply, you know, hey, how do I get good, okay? goes back to the first thing I said about philosophy is they got to be – when you're recruiting, they got to be what? Coachable. They got to want to listen. See? So I mean, you try and do those things, you know, and so even at the NCAs that are coming up, <clears throat> we're going to try and or we're going to do a, an event. that's called seven on seven to where on Wednesday night, we're going to have a thing and we're going to donate the money that's made to charity. But what we want to have is seven speakers that get up And it's going to be uh, at Cowboy Jacks, but they're going to get up. And for seven minutes, they're going to tell how wrestling impacted their life. Okay. I think Gable, I think Gable has said he's going to be one of them. And we've got six other ones. And the whole object is in a very short period of time, we're going to get some people to stand up and say, how did wrestling impact my life? What did it do for me? How did it change me? What did it give me? And what do I owe it to give back, okay? so I'm rambling
0: now. You no, that's okay. Rambling? I like it. I want to – I should come and record that. That would be awesome to get that on uh, – unless you guys already have something set up, but that would be awesome to get that on – get that captured and put that into a, into a kind of a standalone thing because that's obviously the whole theme of this is let's get people away no. from wrestling because it teaches things.
1: Yeah. No, there's uh we're going to do it in, 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 uh, in court, in, uh, with track wrestling. But I mean, you guys want to come, I don't see any reason why you can't come. You know, there'll be, I, I would assume there's going to be multiple people that are going to um, tape it. And that's what we want. We want it to get it out to different people to hear different things. And, and it's the same thing is that seven people, seven stories, you know, and, all the stories are different, okay? but they all revolve around what did this sport, okay, do for me? Okay, is an important component of the whole thing. And it's like if they're not if you're not doing anything before the, you know, the night before the NCA, you come here and then no money. We'ren't campus is going to sponsor it, but <clears throat> we don't keep any money. All the money is going to be given away to take down cancer you know so the whole object of <clears throat> wrestlers are very good at donating time effort okay cuz they're used to giving and so it's a good way to start the tournament have a very positive thing for wrestling help take down cancer this
0: whole bit so i love it i love lots it of, i definitely encourage people to on. to go to that and uh, la- la- where was it at, Coach? A restaurant in Minneapolis? He said.
1: Yeah, it's at a <clears throat> it's a place called Cowboy Jacks. Okay. Cowboy Jacks. They're going to have a big room there, so you can hold seven or eight hundred people. Have a mic there, you know. And then the other thing is, the whole thing is, is that I said before, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was at Iowa, one of the things that I did is, you have to get wrestling people together. OK, they want the camaraderie of it. OK, so if you can have an, if we can have and sponsor an event before the NSA kicks off. I mean, what better than to go to a party? OK, with the six or seven hundred people, they're all thinking about, hey, what's going to happen at the tournament? They got different things. They can talk the same thing. They're all wrestling people. Jeez. What better environment would you want to be in?
0: I can't think of one me either great point i mean that's who wouldn't want to hang around those kind of people all day very uh yeah you know what i mean yeah i mean there'll there'll be you know hopefully there'll be a lot of people there i mean and it's like on a wednesday
1: night everybody's what they're looking for something to do so why not get us all in one place that's what we want to do is that it's like you know it's like going back it's old home week you know Half the fun of going to the national tournament, besides wrestling, watching the wrestling, is hanging out with your old friends and telling stories, seeing what's going on. And we want to make it a party. We want to make it an event. We want to make it something that's special to to every year. Hey, we're going to do this. And as a result, we're going to help some organization in the process. We're not going to get anything out of it because it goes back to, again, you go back to your philosophy what's number seven of the J seven is what
0: service. There you go.
1: Okay. So we have an obligation to help some people. So if we can do this and wrestling people can come and I can hang and you can get a couple, you know, you spend your, I think it's 20 bucks. You spend 20 bucks and you get a couple of free drinks. Geez, And you get the chance to talk wrestling and bump into it. see old friends and faces and, Jeez, and it's amazing how much better we were than we think we were, you know, tell stories and <laughs> it's good, you know, I was, I was a whole lot better now than I was way back then. <laughs> At least I think so. Yeah.
0: No question about it, but, coach.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just get better and better every year. I. Right? I don't even remember
0: anybody beating me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Well, yeah. Well, Mr. J. Robinson, it's been an honor, sir. Thank you very much for your time. I look forward to meeting at the Nationals. I'll be sure to come up and say hello. All right.
1: You do. If anything I can do for you, let me know. Happy to. Been fun, Ryan. Been fun, Ryan.
0: Too. Bye. And all great things must come to an end. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Give us a review, give us a rating, and share this with your friends. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life.